All right, I trust you still have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, uh, <clears throat> if you were uh, following along in the bulletin, you noticed that, uh, that at the top of the bulletin it said that we were supposed to start the service uh, with a baptism. Um, that baptism has been, actually we're going to baptize uh, Mark and Kathy uh, this morning, but had some technical issues with the tank and and all of that. So uh, we've moved their baptism to the 22nd uh, of this month. So we're uh, we're excited that the Lord allows us to use that tank that He's given us. Amen. And we'll uh, we'll get to see uh, to see that uh, that glorious ordinance of the church here in just a couple of weeks. You know, one of the things that <clears throat> one of the things that I regularly pray for, and I've had some folks comment on this. Uh, it, I guess it. Um, it isn't a regular thing that you hear, but one of the things that I regularly pray for on Sunday mornings, not just from the pulpit, but that I, that I, when I send out prayers, uh, for folks and things like that, but, uh, one of the things I regularly pray for is that we would worship well when we gather together. Well, what does that mean? What, what does it mean that we would worship well? What exactly is it that I'm asking God for? When I ask that, and I would encourage that to be a part of everybody's regular prayers, is that when we gather together, we would worship well. But but what does it mean? Uh, am, am I asking for a good show? Uh, am I asking for good, skillful performances from the platform? Am I asking for God to give me a strong delivery in my in my preaching? Is that what I'm asking for? Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for those things specifically. I hope that we pray for the musicians who lead us in worship. I hope that you pray for your praise team. I hope that you pray for Bob and Matthew when they're up here. I hope that you pray for our future choir. (laughs) I hope that you pray for me and pray for my delivery that I would be able to preach uh, clearly. Pray that I communicate well. Pray that my... My idiosyncrasies don't get in the way of the message. I hope that you pray those things, but is that what I mean when I ask us to pray that we would worship well? I hope that you pray for every element of our gathered times together, but here's here's the reality. In our flesh, we can get every element of our gathered time together, we can, we can have those things absolutely picture perfect. We can have all those things just, just go off without a hitch. We can have every little detail right down to the lighting and the room temperature perfect. I don't know how you could ever get the room temperature perfect because there's hot blooded folks and cold blooded folks in the same room. But if miraculously that was to happen, where we had every detail right down right down to the room temperature completely perfect we could get everything completely right and still not worship well see it's my heart's desire that when we gather together as a church family that we worship well why is that because the one whom we worship Jesus is the only one that is worthy of worship. Amen? And that's what we've gathered here for. We've not gathered here for a production or for any of the, any of those elements of the service. We've gathered here to use those elements to worship 
Jesus, to worship Jesus through those each of those elements. See, worshiping well isn't the flashy display of giftedness that is that is on display in front of everybody who's sitting and watching. No, worshiping well is exalting Christ, not our gifts, not our giftedness. And that should be our desire when we gather together. And that was Paul's desire for the church at Corinth. You know, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you remember what was going on at the church at Corinth, what was going on in their gatherings. They were having all of this strife. They were having significant division within their church. And we've seen that already, but later on as we go through the rest of the book, we're, we're going to see how this, this church, how the folks in this church were so captivated by the show. They were so captivated by flashy gifts and abilities and talents. They were, they were more focused on the show than on anything else. <clears throat> Last week, Paul reminded us that the message that we preach when we gather together, this message that we preach isn't attractive to the world. As a matter of fact, the world thinks that this message that we preach is just downright silly and the method that we use in proclaiming the world, the, the, wor- the word, the world thinks that this method and this message is just downright silly. And our passage this morning reminds us that our worship, that the act of gathering together, the act of what we've gathered here to do this morning, the world thinks that this is absolutely silly. Foolishness is how he says it in the passage. The first thing in the passage that we have before us this morning is Paul sets out a a contrast. Look at verses 22 through 24 again. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, in in Paul's day... If you're familiar with Scripture and you're familiar with the history around Scripture, you, you remember or you realize that in Paul's day there was this huge um, difference. There was a huge contrast between Jews and Gentiles. Here he calls Gentiles Greeks. There's, they're kind of synonymous for each other. But there was this huge contrast between Jews and Greeks. Jews were seen as God's chosen people, and the Jews viewed the Gentiles as mangy old cur dogs was how they would refer to them. Talk about some ethnic tension going on. They had some serious ethnic tension going on. Well, Paul... When he lists Jews and Greeks, that's not the contrast that he's setting up. He says that both of them have got it wrong. <laughs> he says all these people that you've pitted against you, they've got it, they've all got it wrong. The contrast isn't between what Jews and Gentiles look for in worship. The, con- the contrast is between what non-believers and believers look for in worship. See, true worship looks silly both to Jews and to Gentiles. As a matter of fact, true worship looks silly to the whole world. Verse 24 says that the world looks for one of two things in a worship service. The world looks for either dramatic signs or it looks for profound wisdom, profound worldly wisdom. Uh, Let me put it in a way that brings it a little bit more 
closer to home in a way that we can probably recognize. See, depending on your personality or the way that the way that you came up or the way that the way that you're just naturally bent toward, you can you can think that the best way to grow a church, if I was to ask you the best way to put to grow a church, you would say that well the best way is to put on a put on a great show. You might not use those words, but you might think, well, you know, to grow a church, man, you really got to have great music. You got to have dramatic preaching. You got to have professional quality lighting. You got to have fresh hip decor. You know, have some some pallets up back. You know, <laughs> whatever whatever your idea of fresh uh, decor is. You got to have great tech. You got to have great audio visuals. That's how you grow a church. Now, that's some folks might drift toward that or might. That might be the natural bent. Or you might, you might think, well, you know, and the best way to grow a church is, is to have the best relevant teaching. How many times have you heard that word, relevant? Have the best relevant teaching. And, and what they mean by relevant teaching is, is have, you know, good information, good stuff that you can get your, get your arms wrapped around that you can get handles on your life with. Have good relevant information to help you raise your kids or to help you flourish in your marriage or help you succeed on the job or just help you win at life. See, Paul contrasts both of those kinds of thinking in verse 24 with what we're really supposed to be focused on. In verses 25 and 26. And what we're really supposed to be focused on looks silly to the world. What's our focus supposed to be? Preaching Christ crucified. Preaching Christ crucified. That means that our focus is always supposed to be on the gospel. The gospel says that there's nothing inherently good in any of us. What kind of a marketing program starts with that? Well, <laughs> there's nothing good in you. The gospel starts with there's nothing inherently good in any of us. At our core, we're rebellious sinners who, who rebelled against the God who created us. Left to ourselves, we've rejected Him. We've broken His rules. And because we've rejected Him and broken His rules apart from Christ, that means that each of us is a traitor against the God who created us. A traitor who is only deserving of eternal punishment in a place called hell. That's not much of a marketing plan, is it? But because God loves you so much, because your Creator loves you so much, He chose, He willingly chose, as Isaiah says, to crush His Son. And His Son, Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. God the Father sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, to take that punishment that we deserve as rebels against our Creator, to take that punishment on Himself. The Bible says that He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He suffered and bled and died on the cruel cross of Calvary on our behalf. Oh, that's the gospel that we, that we preach. But that's not all of the gospel that we preach. Because even then, just the fact that Jesus 
The eternal Son of God died on the cross in our place to take our sins for us. All that that provided for was taking our sins. That took away the negative. That doesn't do anything to give us the positive holiness that's required for us to be in the presence of a holy God. God loves you so much, loves you so much that He wants to not just forgive you of sins, but He wants you to live forever in His presence with Him. So not only was your sin credited to Jesus through His death on the cross, because He rose again and He lives today, He has clothed you in His righteousness. In His living righteousness. His holiness is credited to you through His life in you. See, as a believer, the, the ancient theologians, they, they used to use a word called the great exchange. As a believer, this great exchange has taken place in your life. You have been moved from death to life. Your eternal destiny has been changed from suffering the, the omnipotent, the all-powerful wrath of God in hell. It's been, your, your eternal destiny has been moved from that to living forever in glory in His presence. That's what it means to preach Christ crucified. It means that we preach and teach every word that God has given us in this Bible. And every word that God has given us in this Bible points to Jesus and points to His finished work on the cross for us, for the glory of God. We preach Christ crucified. Now, surely you don't think you can grow a church that way. Surely you have to spice it up with a good show. Surely you have to have the right kind of uh, marketing and flash, and you have to have the good show around it. Don't you need some signs and wonders to kind of liven the place up a little bit? Don't you need some emotional manipulation? Preacher, just tell a good, tell a good tearjerker story. Tell a good, tell a good joke. Don't we need a good stage show? Don't we need an awesome choir or band or bells and whistles or whatever you can think of? Don't we need that? Don't you need a flashy preacher? <laughs> or maybe you lean the other way. Maybe you lean more toward the content than the show. Surely you don't think you can grow a church through 40 to 45 minutes of straight biblical exposition, do you? Picking up this week where we left off last week and picking up next week where we leave off this, surely you don't think, why don't you just be more practical? Don't you need to be more practical? Throw in some, some modern psychology or some philosophy or some politics. Boy, we'd stir stuff up with some politics, couldn't we? Throw in some personal opinions. Throw in some good practical methodology. Can't we just have some good how-to live your life sermons above all just make it funny and entertaining. See, people demand signs, and people demand a big show. People demand worldly wisdom. So it only makes sense to give the people what they want, right? Wasn't it P.T. Barnum or one of those folks said that you got to give the people what they want? Doesn't it make sense that if we're going to grow a church, we've got to give the people what we want, what they want? What did Paul say? So we preach Christ crucified. 
when we preach Christ crucified through our music, when we preach Christ crucified through our giving, when we preach Christ crucified through our fellowship together, when we preach Christ crucified through our corporate prayers, when we preach Christ crucified through our ordinances, when we preach Christ crucified through our preaching, then our worship will be powerful. Then we will be worshiping well. We'll be worshiping well whether God chooses to grow the church or not. Amen? See, growing this church can never, ever be our main focus. Now, I can't tell you how many emails, how many conferences I get invited to, how many all of these things that talk about, you know, here's all these different ways that you can grow your church. Like that's supposed to be our main focus. Our main focus can never be growing this church because if it is, if that becomes our main focus, then we're going to be tempted to do whatever it takes to make that happen. And whatever it takes to make that happen is doing what the world is looking for, what the world is wanting. We'll be tempted to give them the big show. We'll be tempted to give them the signs that they're looking for. We'll be tempted to give them the helpful tips and worldly wisdom that they're looking for. But growing this church is not our main focus. Worshiping well had better always be our main focus. Amen? And that will give us confidence. It will give us confidence even in the times when we're not getting to see growth in attendance and giving and baptisms, getting to see the wonderful things that God's doing in our midst now. Even if that doesn't happen, then we'll still have confidence. We'll still have confidence because our confidence is not in the things that we can see and that we can measure. Our confidence is in God and His Word. Look at verse 25. Verse 25, he goes on to say, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I don't know if you highlight in your Bible, but that is an excellent verse to highlight or to circle or to mark somehow, definitely to memorize. You know, earlier this week I had somebody ask me what our what our strategy for growth as a church is. So I told them. I said our mission is that we are new lives, bringing new life to our neighbors and the nations. And the strategy that we use to accomplish that is building real relationships that multiply disciples. The response that I got was the equivalent of a blank stare. Just, you know, one of those where you just get the slow blink. Really? That's it? That's, that's your strategy? Yeah, our strategy, you mean to say that our strategy is for us as individuals in the church to make friends with people so that we can take those friends and lead them to walk with Jesus the same way that we do? That's it? Really? Tell me about your programs. Tell me about your your processes. Tell me about your, your systems. Tell me about your structures. Tell me about... Those kinds of things, the stuff that you... Sorry, i got nothing for you. i got nothing except for the fact that we're a biblical people. i got nothing except for the fact that we're a gospel people. i got nothing except for the fact that we are a people who are covenanted together. i got nothing except for the fact that we're a missional people. In other words, we preach Christ crucified. 
We preach Christ crucified. That seems like a silly and foolish way to grow a church, doesn't it? I pray that God continues to bless us with growth. But the reality that we need to prepare our hearts for is that whether this church continues to grow or not, we always have to do it the right way. We always have to preach Christ crucified. And when we do it that way, we can absolutely trust that God's plans for us are far wiser than any plan that we can come up with. And we can trust that God's methods are far more powerful, far stronger than at drawing people to Himself than anything that we can possibly do to try to manipulate people to come to God. Now, we've got to be careful with this because it's very easy to fall in the ditch on the other side with this and say, well, you know, just whatever happens, happens. Now, you can't use this as an excuse to be lazy or sloppy in the things that we do. Should we want our gatherings to look good and to sound good and to feel good? Of course we should. We should work hard to sing well. We should work hard to give sacrificially. We should work hard to do everything that we can to worship well. I should always work as hard as I can to study this text inside and out to know exactly what it says so that I can communicate it well to you so that you can know what it says. I should I should make the absolute most of the limited ability that I have to be able to communicate. I, I should work hard at that. And we should thank God for the facilities that He's blessed us with, and we should do what we can to keep these facilities looking good and functioning well. We, we should do all of that. We can't be casual. We can't be sloppy about what we put on the platform in front of the congregation. But at the same time, we can't trust in any of those things. That's not where we place our trust. Verse 24 says, Our confidence is in Christ, the power of God. Our confidence is in Christ, the wisdom of God. Our confidence is in Christ and in Him alone. Amen? And to the world around us, that sounds silly. It sounds just plain silly. It sounds like foolishness. But you know, back up in verse 24, Paul tells us who he's addressing here. He's not addressing the watching world here. He's addressing the church. He's addressing this passage to those who are called. Here's the reality this morning. You are called. You're called to worship God, and you're called to worship Him well. So in the time that we have left, I want to give you three things that must happen in order for you to worship God well. First, first thing that needs to happen for you to worship God well is you must answer the call to be saved. See, the call to worship God is only possible through the blood that Jesus Christ shed for you on the cross. You need to understand that, that you and God are not equal. You and God are not, are not casual buddies. He's not the man upstairs to you. No, you're not God's peer somehow. You can't approach God like you're His long lost buddy from high school. No, you are His creation. I am His creation. We are His, uh, some versions use the word creatures. We are His creatures. That means that He is supremely over you. He is supremely over me. And the only way that we can come to God, 
this God who created us, this God who is infinitely wise and powerful and holy and glorious, the only way that we can come to Him is through a mediator. We can't approach Him directly. And you know that He's given us that mediator? The only mediator who is worthy to approach God is His Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, because He took on flesh and became sin for you and suffered the wrath wrath of God for that sin, He is the only one who is both able and worthy to be the mediator between you and God. He's the only one who's able to stand in that gap. Jesus became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's what it means to be saved. And all you have to do to become saved is accept that truth by faith. All the work that was needed to be done was done. Jesus did all the work that needed to be done. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe the truth of the Gospel. Receive Jesus as your Lord and King and Master and Savior. Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus in faith, believing that He is who He said He is in His Word and that He did what He said He did in His Word. See, it's impossible for you to worship God well unless you first answered the call to be saved. You must first answer the call to be saved. Second, for you to worship well, you must answer the call to be filled See, you'll never accomplish God's holy purposes for your life. You'll never worship God well if you're not continually being filled with His Holy Spirit. Now, don't get confused here. There's some doctrinal confusion out there about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't get confused here because at the very moment of salvation... From the very moment that you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior, from that very moment, God's Holy Spirit lives in you. You don't have to wait to try to work toward or try to earn some sort of a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that comes on you at a second, subsequent time that you have to somehow work your way into. No, at the very instant that you're saved, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells inside you. And from that very moment through eternity, His permanent seal is on your life and it cannot be removed. That's what Scripture tells us. But even though that's the case, even though at the moment of salvation you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, even though that's the case, the Bible commands us to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. See, the filling of the Holy Spirit is a is the moment by moment reality of walking with Christ as a believer. It's what happens every day of your life as a believer. In order to live the life that God has called you to live, in order to live as a child of the king, in order to live as a saved person as a Christian, you must be being filled with the Holy Spirit every day. And the only way that you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day, you can't fill something up with two things at the same time, can you? Try it and you'll make a mess. The only way that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit is if you're continually being emptied of yourself. 
our sin, our selfishness, our pride, our lust, our insistence of getting our own way, none of those things can coexist with the fullness of the Spirit in our lives. In other words, you can't be full of the Holy Spirit and full of yourself at the same time. That's where confession, that's where repentance comes into the life of a believer. As a believer, all your sin, past sin, present sin, and future sin, all of that sin has already been paid for on the cross. The book of Colossians describes it as the record of debt that was stacked against you. Past, present, and future, it was nailed to the cross and Jesus bled all over it and covered it with His blood. But even though all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been covered by the blood of Jesus, it doesn't mean that we live free from sin and that we ignore the sin when it happens in our lives. Now, as a believer, when you sin, one of the ways that you can have, that you can know that you're a believer is when you sin as a believer, the Holy Spirit convicts you of that. It's not compatible with this Spirit that lives in you. The Holy Spirit convicts you of that sin. And when He does, as a believer, brothers and sisters, you must confess it. You must confess that sin, not so that you can get forgiveness from it, because your forgiveness was already paid for on the cross. You confess your sin because you're agreeing with God that there's something in your life that is offensive to Him. And you want to get rid of it. You're confessing it before Him. You're agreeing with God that it's sin and that it's offensive to Him and that it's incompatible with your new life in Christ. And as you confess that sin, the power of the Holy Spirit in you, in that power that He's given you, then you can repent of that sin. You see the difference between confession and repentance? Confession is agreeing with God that it's offensive. Repentance is turning from that sin. And you can't do it in your own strength. But by the Spirit who lives in you, you can. Give me the power and the strength to turn from that sin and never, ever return to it again. As a believer, you need to answer His call to be filled this morning by confessing your sin and repenting of it. Finally, for you to worship well, you must answer His call to be to, to be together. You know, I thank God that of all the places that you could have chosen to be this morning, you have chosen to gather together with this church family in this place this morning. A few semesters ago, there was a, there was a young man that came. He only came maybe once or twice to our uh, campus Bible studies at, at Bluefield College. Um, probably because of the discussion that we got into when he, when he was there. I don't remember the text that we were going through. It was, a, it was a few semesters ago. We do the same things in our Bible studies that we do here. We just pick a book of the Bible and we work through it systematically week by week. But whatever the passage that we were in that morning or that, that, uh, that lunchtime was focusing on the importance of us gathering together as local churches to worship. And, you know, he, um, he went on a rant in, in the middle of that Bible study about, you know, I don't, I don't really need a, I don't need to really need a Bible. I don't really need a, a church to worship God. And he said his most effective way of worshiping God 
was while he was hiking in the woods. Listen to me. And I've heard it. I mean, we've all heard the folks that say, I can worship Jesus in my deer stand as well as I can worship Him at church, right? Listen to me. That is a lie from the absolute pits of hell. I didn't get one amen on that. That's a lie from the pits of hell. Can you worship God in your quiet time? Of course you can. Can you worship God while you're spending time with your kids or your grandkids? Of course you can. Can you worship God while you're in a deer stand? Of course you can, especially if an eight-point walks up. (laughs) That'll move from worship to inside your head just shouts of praise. Of course you can worship God in those situations, and we should be worshiping God in all of the circumstances and situations of our life, but the Bible commands corporate worship. He commands us gathering together. God desires for us to worship Him together as a gathered body of believers. What happens here when we gather together is unique in time and space, and God ordained for it to happen that way. As a believer here this morning, is that your first priority on the first day of every week? To gather here and worship with your Parkview family. See, that's the way you'll worship well. If you want to worship God well, you need to be saved, you need to be filled, and you need to be together. So really the question before each of us this morning is, do you want to worship Him well? Do you need to start worshiping God well this morning? See, we can answer that ambiguous question. Do you want to worship God well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, do you need to start this morning? Do you need to start today? Do you need to be saved? Has there ever been a time in your life where you trusted Jesus, where you removed yourself from the throne of your life and you asked Jesus to be your Lord and Master and King? you need to be saved this morning? Do you have sin in your life that, as a believer that you need to confess and that you need to repent, that you need to turn from? Is there a, a, a nagging sin in your life that you continually are giving into? You need to confess that and repent this morning. Do you need to be filled? Do you need to join with this family? Maybe you've been bouncing back and forth between different churches and, you know, all that's well and good. But there comes a time that you need to be part of a family. You need to be a part of this family. You need to start that process this morning. See, that's the question that's in front of us this morning. See, however the Lord is calling you, we know that He's calling you because He says throughout His Word that He's calling you. However the Lord is calling you, you need to understand that it's your responsibility to respond to that call. And there's no better time, there's no better day to respond than now. Because you don't know if you're going to have another opportunity to do that. So I'm going to ask that you'd respond this morning.